Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 21. Today we are talking about Errol Morris's film, uh, The Unknown Known, and we're going to talk about uh, the documentary, The Act of Killing, as well. That's our segment one and our segment two. For those of you who are new to That's a Wrap, our first segment is always pickups, which is where we kind of catch up with each other, see what's going on, uh, share news and stuff like that. So... That's what we'll do right now, and I think we should probably start with the most exciting news, or what is probably the most exciting news uh, that Dr. Gullen has to offer. Uh, yeah, um, I um, posted this on Facebook. I'm moving in August. I've accepted a uh, tenure-track uh, assistant professorship at Westfield State University in Westfield, Massachusetts. Uh, assistant professor of new media and video production. So I'm uh, very excited. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited. There's a lot to do before then. Uh, fortunately, uh, I was supposed to teach two two classes this summer, but the first session of uh, the summer section got canceled. So um, I'm kind of using the time right now to catch up on getting ready to move, looking for a place to live, um, you know, just catching up on some some films and TV shows that I wanted to watch that I never got to over the course of the semester. Um, you know, since we didn't record in April, I mean, I think we can all concur that April was an extremely busy month for all of us, and, and um, same here. So just trying to get some of that done, and... Um, over the over the the early part of the summer, so thanks for the the shout out and the kudos, and I'm we're still I'm still going to be recording. Um, you, you're not you guys aren't going to get rid of me that easily. <laughs> um, I'm going to be yeah I'll still be uh, on the podcast and recording uh, regularly from uh, from Western Mass. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, congratulations, Chris. Thanks. Um, yeah, just for the sake of form, uh, I'm Eric Marshall. I'm Chris Gullen. I'm Nick Schlegel. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so that's that's great. And we're really glad that that you're gonna uh, stick with with that's a wrap uh, through the wonders of digital technology and all. <laughs> Since we're rarely in the same room anyway, it won't, probably won't make that much of a difference. But <laughs> no, not really. This this is a blast. I the, I always look forward to uh, to our talks. So yeah, there's there's no way I would I would ever give this up. I think even if uh, even if I was moving to uh, Kandahar, I think I'd find a way to do uh, <laughs> that's a wrap. Yeah, great, great. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, there's not much new. Yeah, I just started a new uh, spring semester class or summer semester, they call it U of M, summer one. Uh, intro to screen studies, and I'm pretty excited about that. Very cool. Uh, yeah, we had a uh, bit of a hiatus. You know, we didn't release anything in April. Uh, mainly because we were all busy with the end of semester stuff. So luckily we're back on track now. But yeah, otherwise not a whole lot. I'm still writing, still working, and uh, just happy, happy, happy. What about you, Nick? Well, I'd like to and not only say congratulations to Chris on his great news, but also congratulate that to Rap. We're a year old, we just, <laughs> but we're 21 in terms of episode years. So <laughs> we should all be having you know, alcohol. 
Um, and, uh, you know, that's, I'd say that's, you know, pretty darn good. 21 episodes in a year, considering we have some pretty hectic uh, uh, periods, is, um, is a nice, nice, you know, good round number, I think. You know, we just we sort of fell short of two a month, but um, uh, average certainly a lot more than one a month. So, I mean, that's pretty, yeah. pretty happy about that. And uh, we'll shoot for, uh, I think, uh, two a month for next year, you know. Um, but it was it was a year ago, you know, that we started this, and so I just wanted to say, you know, hap- happy birthday, <laughs> happy anniversary, happy, happy birthday, anniversary. yeah, absolutely. What yeah. is the first anniversary for a podcast? Is that paper or technology <laughs> or, yeah. or um, bandwidth or what's like? What's our anniversary gift <laughs> to ourselves? Alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> Considering we hatched this while drinking beer, maybe at some point we should we should get together <laughs> for our anniversary party and you know have some beers. That's a good idea. Yeah, we did. We need to have a drink and like, you know, because we were drinking in our first podcast, which was great. And it was high alcohol uh, content um, beer, wasn't it? it was, <laughs> yes, yeah, it was. Pretty high gravity stuff. Yeah. yeah. High gravity stuff. I think we need to do that again. Just yeah, I agree. We should totally do that. Well, my apartment's open to you guys, obviously, and this is where all the high gravity beer is. So, <laughs> I've got I've got some stuff to bring. So, well, I think yeah, we can get together and have a good party. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I made a I made a beer, uh, a double IPA. It's kind of a Bell's Hop Slam clone, and I don't know if either of you tried it yet. It's uh, slam, it yeah. Well, it doesn't taste like Hop Slam that much, but um, I mean, it's got the honey in it, and I, I mess up the hop additions a little bit, but it's pretty good. We could uh, we could dip into that for sure. Yeah, it's it's uh, I know right. Well, you know, they all a lot of them start with a C. I'm I'm new, whatever. Hop Slam, but. Uh, is you know is incredible, but it's it's close to ten percent, and I swear there's wormwood in there because that <laughs> that one beer makes me kind of hallucinate. I think I hallucinating. Think, yeah, it's 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 a weird beer. Don has a case in his garage, <laughs> which we should. Oh, a case, huh? Wow, a case. A yeah. Nice. Um, For those of you not in Michigan or not who or who don't drink a lot of beer, um, Bell's Hop Slam is a is a double IPA that made by Bell's Brewery here. We're in if here in Michigan, we we have a an amazing amount of good beer, craft beer, uh, stuff like that. So Hop Slam is one of the kind of upper tier, I guess you could say. So to have a case of it, it's pretty amazing. I think it's just your maybe it's just your chemistry, Nick. You know. The only I think I think the solution is just to drink more and see drink if you can more. plow plow through it. After I agree. Hot slam, I'm a I'm 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 already a little loopy, you know. <laughs> and, and I weigh 225 pounds. Mm. You know, it's not like I'm you know, 90 pounds. So. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta build up a tolerance, man. <laughs> tolerance is gone. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. I think when I, I'm, by when I was 22 or 23 was the sort of peak of my tolerance. It's been waning ever since. We we becoming a hardcore drinker. It, may, it really does take practice. I remember <laughs> one time. I'm sure there are a million stories out there that I can top mine tenfold over. But I do remember going to Central Michigan University for Mayfest when I was about 21, and just being parked by a keg all day long. Mm. I had like you know red plastic cup after cup after cup. I think I I I mean I didn't count, but I probably had about. 24 of those in like you know from about noon to midnight and i was completely sober by the, you know, I, was like, I mean it just it was a, a, such a drinking marathon by the time midnight rolled around we went to taco bell 
and you know back to my friend's apartment and crashed. I was completely sober. You know, I used to have a good tolerance back then. It's gone. It's completely gone. Now one hop slam and I got lampshade. <laughs> you got the lampshade on your head. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we should totally do that. Um, we'll we'll let the listeners in on it, and we'll uh, record a nice episode one of these days when we're all together drinking some beer again, sometime soon. I think that's a good idea. I like it. I think our listeners would demand it. I think I think they should. That's probably our best episodes. <laughs> Maybe they'll never know. You guys, listeners, you'll never know. Oh, hey, if you wanna, uh, <laughs> if you wanna. Talk to us, give us some feedback, tell us to shut up about the beer. Uh, you can go to that's a rap show.com and do just that. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Just go to that's a rap show.com and, and you'll find us. There's also an email list you can sign up for now, um, which will give you updates and, and things like that of, uh, of episodes. So do that. Do it. <laughs> do it. So uh, let's, you guys want to move on? Sounds good to me. All right, so we will move to photography. That's right. Principal photography episode. Episode. <laughs> so this is principal photography segment one of episode of episode twenty one. We're going to talk about Errol Morris today. Finally, Errol Morris. Yay! Uh, we uh, we all watched the unknown known, which is uh, Errol Morris's newest film, uh, in which he interviews Donald Rumsfeld. It's one of his uh, long form interviews, um, like the one he did with Robert McNamara, uh, called "The Fog of War," for which he won an Oscar. Um, similar also to Mr. Death and some of his other uh, long form interview types of documentaries, uh, and. We have not talked about it with each other. We just watched it, I think, this week, all of us. And we're going to just do a little reaction to it and talk about Errol Morris's career in general, I think. Uh, who wants to start? I'm afraid that if I start, I'll be really long-winded because Errol Morris is kind of my thing in a way. In a way. Well, I, would, you know, I would pipe in here by saying that ever since I started teaching film, the very first semester I ever taught it, um. I, I incorporated the thin blue line into the syllabus, you know. Now, for example, at the, one of the universities where I currently teach, they don't do any documentary in their intro to film. But my philosophy towards that is since it's a gen ed course, you know, people take it from all sorts of different major disciplines. That's my one shot at getting at them. So <laughs> I, I, want, I want to get into non-narrative, non-fiction modes. And, and talk about the porousness between narrative and non-narrative cinema. And, of course, there's no better film for that than The Thin Blue Line. And, they, and there's never been a student who has kind of been spellbound by that film, even though the aesthetics of it have been sort of um, swallowed up by certain type of cable TV programming, you know, mm -hmm. like Cold Case Files or, you know, whatever, the reenactment crime stuff. Yeah. Or, you know, unsolved mysteries. Unsolved mysteries. Absolutely. Morris, Morris sort of laid the foundation for that that they all they all took from and created an entire industry out of. Uh, even even though they're familiar with that, they still are just spellbound. And uh, the, so I've been teaching that film forever. And then last year, I was teaching a, a document, a course entirely on documentary. 
I had Eric come in and I made Errol Morris our um, our case study for the semester. We they had an outside screening assignment. They had to watch the Thin Blue Line, which they all did. And then in class, we watched The Fog of War and Tabloid. And they had to read a fair amount on, on Morris as well. And it just became apparent. And we watched The Umbrella Man, too. <laughs> it just became apparent that he really is probably, you know, next to Frederick Wiseman, who's still living, the, the most important uh, contemporary um, documentarian, at least American documentarian. Hmm working in the industry today and so I think we were all really looking forward to this film particularly since we knew it was going to be a follow-up to um, the fog of war at least in terms of form and subject matter yeah it's hard right. not to see it as a follow-up since it's another uh, secretary of defense right uh, although I think we're all gonna find argue maybe that it's a much different film maybe in a way but what do you think Chris um, I uh... I've used the thin blue line before as well when teaching and um, not as often as Nick, uh, but I've used excerpts from it and um, especially, you know, especially it's because it's done in early in Morris's career and there's very little actual interview. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's not interview, but there's, you know, Morris doesn't, um, he doesn't, ask questions and like like in the unknown known so it's it's kind of in that style that he was he started with when in films like gates of heaven and Vernon, florida where he just kind of lets the subjects tell the story but um fimble line is um it it i think it's captivating because it's such it's just such a great story you have such a great narrative behind it and whenever you have um you know, a, a gross miscarriage of justice and you have colorful characters like in, in, in Texas where, where thin blue line took place. Uh, you're going to have people who are, who are interested. And um, yeah, you have the c- contemporary TV documentary stylistically has subsumed uh, the thin blue line. And even in the unknown known, you have the cinematography that is, um, you know, it, it's very fluid and beautiful and you have Danny Elfman's score, which kind of is, is reminiscent of like Edward Scissorhands, and adds this morose, this this morose quality to the to to, to the film. But I I, I I I agree with you. I think that Morris and Wiseman, and funny enough, Morris and Wiseman uh, both premiered their respective films uh, this past year at um, the Venice Film Festival. Um, that's where uh, Unknown Known and um, uh, uh, Wiseman's film at Berkeley, I think it was what it was called, where he talked about UC Berkeley, um, premiered together. So you had the kind of these two these two giants at this one film festival mm-hmm. doing doing their documentaries together. It, it's hard um, to. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I so I was just gonna say it's you know it's it was I really I really love the the unknown. Known. I think I agree. I think it, it is kind of a follow up to the um, the fog of war. But you know, again, slightly, slightly differently. I think there was also with the unknown, known, with the media coverage, and you know, it's it's the the way that that Morris kind of treats his subject, and the way that Rumsfeld. Um, well, we'll 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 get to the we'll get to that. But what were you gonna say, Eric? Oh, I was just gonna I was just gonna comment that I can't think of two different 
documentary filmmakers than Wiseman and Morris. They're right. such polar opposites in so many ways right. in their styles. But but I mean, Nick's right, and you, you guys are right. They're they're two of the most prominent, um, right? You know, alive. But yeah, you can't I can't I can't imagine two, two different filmmakers because what people respond to about the thin blue line is is the stylistics right he took the the aesthetics of fiction film of hollywood high budget fiction film and brought it to documentary and that's that's why that's why it works in a lot of ways that's why people still respond to it Uh, that's why it spawned all these other things but it's also it also took a lot of flack i think at the time you know because people were not used to that type of um those types of aesthetics in a, in a documentary. And since then, since then he's only done it more and more and to great effect, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's, he does a really good job most of the time um, with that stuff. So that's, what's so neat about documentary. It's, it's one of those genres that it's constantly evolving, constantly changing. And it just takes one filmmaker or one or two filmmakers to do something so different with the genre that, kind of catapults it into a completely different direction. Like the film we're going to watch in segment, or we're going to talk about in segment two, mm-hmm. uh, Act of Killing. Um, and, you know, you have people like Ken Burns, you have people like oh, Michael yeah. Moore who, who make it very, very populist and, 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 and all of that. But then you have people like Morris and Wiseman who, right, while, while different, still delve very, very deep beneath the surface and, and just take the genre in all these different directions. That's, I think that's what's so, so great about the genre is yeah, it's not much much deeper than than burns or or more i think well sure yeah ob, obvious yeah obviously but but that's what i mean though is you have all the you have these different directors who are all documentary filmmakers but their their approach is is different and interesting well that's because no single documentarian can agree with another on what actually constitutes documentary film <laughs> yeah i guess largely not. true yeah i would agree with that well, I mean, we should. Uh, I mean, since we're doing a doc, this is our first. I guess we've done documentaries before. We did side by side, but you know, in terms of documentary as a, a as a film a form, form, I mean, it's um, there are a lot of different. You are you're right. There are a lot of different definitions, a lot of different forms. But I think that the the central part of the definition of a documentary is that it's it, it it's a truth claim. It makes a claim to telling the truth or representing reality in some way. Yeah, right. Too. Yeah. And I think that's basically what makes documentary different from a, from a, a fictional film, from a fictional and, narrative and film. And therein lies the paradox of the form as well. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, in the form of priming, framing, juxtapos- juxtaposing, mm-hmm. and editing, of course, make that sort of like, engine of truth production, very slippery. I mean, all we have to do is look at, the Thin Blue Line, which is an unbelievably heavily mediated documentary, probably mm-hmm. the most heavily mediated documentary of its time, and still one of the most, in terms of the sheer numbers of hours of interviews that he had to craft and edit. Yeah. Uh, and yet, in, in his case, it's a, it's a really bizarre relationship, because even though this is one of the most heavily mediated films ever made, documentaries, it, act, it arrives at a truth that few documentaries could ever claim to get to yeah yeah and it had real world effects as well absolutely in that particular case well that you know that's one of the things that i think about a lot with morris especially uh watching the unknown known 
I find myself wondering to what extent he's uh, changed the chronology of the interviews, um, to what extent, like what, what he's getting at. Because, you know, with Donald Rumsfeld, I don't know how many hours he spent with him, but I think it was, um, I mean, it was dozens at least of hours. I want to say it was more than that. I'm not sure if I read it or not. I know with Robert McNamara, he had almost 100 hours of of. Uh, of footage, I believe. Uh, so to take that down to an hour and a half or two hours, obviously choices have to be made, right? And that's true of any documentary in any, you know, in any case. But I, I wonder about him because he's always going, Errol Morris is always going for kind of the bigger questions. Mm-hmm. A lot of times he's going for the questions of, you know, what, why do we believe what we believe? You know, what, what's, you know, what, can we understand about history? How do we understand it? How do we make decisions? Like the, he's usually asking bigger questions, not just uh, trying to expose history or expose people in a, in a lot of ways. And I find myself watching the unknown in particular, wondering, um, you know, what what he left out. I would love to see the footage. I, I think I would love to see the footage that he left out, you know. Um, and I'm not saying that I feel overtly manipulated. That's that's not what I'm getting at. Um, yeah, I didn't get that but, at all. Yeah, but I did wonder because he he goes. This is true in some of his other films as well. You get you get a sense that there's that he's constructing some kind of narrative, or you know he's he's putting events in particular orders uh, in a particular order in order to allow the audience you know, to draw their own conclusions. Uh, yeah, a lot of times, um, or not. He's a <laughs> you know, sort of so. an evidentiary cut, you know. Mm-hmm, right, exactly. And some of that was great in this film, and some of it I found just just distracting. Uh, to be honest with you. Well, I'll, but, you know, let, let me take that as a as a platform then to say mm-hmm. that like I felt, I felt Errol was pretty even handed. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I really did. I mean, it 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 it, it came as a bit of a, a surprise. To, to hear all the interviews afterwards because I, you know, talking about how much mm-hmm. he basically disliked um, Donald Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld, but because I thought he, get, it's almost like he gave him every opportunity in the film to address a million things that he just was not, he was either unable to or unwilling to, one or the other. Because if you notice, I mean, some of the notes I took in the very beginning as it started to um, unfold, apart from. Danny Elfman, which I'll get back to later, was I, I wrote things down like, you know, it seems incogent and intelligent. Because uh, if you watch, rewatch the first 10 minutes of it, there's nothing in there that would betray the fact that um, we're going to engage in 100 and whatever it is, 10 minutes of what Morris later called like fortune cookie philosophy, you know? <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about that too, he, actually. He yeah. off like Rumsfeld is authoritative and, you know, he's t- if you go back and look at those first two, 10 minutes, you know, talking about the analogy of the unknown knowns, talking about mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor, talking about applications of, of communication and knowledge within modern warfare and things like that. He comes off as authoritative and intelligent and 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 he is an authoritative and intelligent man, but he's also <sighs> completely ignorant of reality. I think. Yeah. Um. And so, at least you know by what Morris has given us, and it has the same structure as the Fog of War, and it starts. I mean, it's like the same. 
it is like the fog of war part two in many ways except it takes so many different turns because yeah. whereas um i was just gonna say whereas uh mcnamara is, is, is sees you know the light at the end of the tunnel as in you know the the, the end of his days and is really trying to come to some grips with things Rumsfeld seems blissfully ignorant of everything and unwilling to to go there. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a good comparison with um, with both of these. Fog of War is is going to be the obvious comparison, right? And so we should probably delve into it a little bit. But with both of these guys, I think Morris probably went in not liking them. Um, you know, Errol Morris is a progressive. Uh, you know, he was against the Vietnam War, and these are two of the most vilified secretaries of defense in in the 20th century, right? Uh, especially especially by by progressives, um, liberals, however you want, however you want to put it. Um, but I feel like with McNamara, and I felt this way too when I watched Fog of War. I felt like here's a guy who, like you said, he's seeing the end of his days, but he's here's a guy who's thoughtful. He, uh, his, his, the philosophies that he tries to um, kind of work around or work through are he seems he seems genuine in trying to work through the the philosophies and the and the ramifications of of his own actions and remorseful. and of history yeah remorseful and his main thing was um, at the time of filming was he had just written a book uh, you know kind of an anti uh, nuclear war book you know he's he's very much about about limiting nukes and and things like that. And he ends up being somebody who is circumspect even as he still handles Errol Morris, you know, because he's still – I remember at the end of Fog of War, he asked some uh, – I can't remember what it was, a very direct question, and he will not answer the question, and he never answers the, the question. Say, the more I say, the more confusing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The more I say, the more confusing it gets. I'm just gonna, it's, better not, it's better just to say nothing, you know. And, and so he does – and those guys are the same because I remember watching Fog of War and thinking about Donald Rumsfeld because Fog of War came out same during – yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it came out during during the uh, you know during the Iraq War, and you know a lot of lot, there are a lot of mirrors there, a lot of lot of um, um, similarities, a lot of similarities that that I think Errol Morris drew out on purpose. Uh, you, you know, I, I think to a large extent he, he drew them out on purpose. And so I thought about Rumsfeld a lot because Rumsfeld has the same demeanor in a way in front of the media. You know, he obfuscates. He 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 never directly answers the question. But the difference, I think, is that Rumsfeld, like you said, Nick, is he uses this kind of real simplistic philosophy to avoid answering a question and to avoid any ramifications of anything he's done and and to really just just confuse and maybe even just try to justify himself in a way that you didn't really see McNamara doing quite as much. You know, I'm not going to let McNamara completely off the hook. And I wonder about in this film, I wonder if Morris's frustration with Rumsfeld, because uh, I've heard interviews with Morris saying like he just felt like there was nobody home. You know, he felt like yeah. there's just nothing Chris, behind Chris that smile. Links. You know, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. the NPR, the short piece on NPR said... The, you know, wait, wait, don't tell me a segment. No, the other one. The, the sort of Terry Gross. Oh, okay. oh yeah, Terry that Gross. Yeah. Terry mm-hmm. Gross interviewing him. It was somebody else. The one that, the link that you sent or whatever. Oh, yeah, it was, it was somebody sitting in for Terry Gross, but it was fresh air. But on fresh air, okay. And, uh, you know, he said he went into Fog of War not liking McNamara and yeah. came out liking him. And right. he's like, in Rumsfeld, he went in sort of neutral and came out <laughs> disliking the man. Yeah. And it's like, you know, he, I... I I couldn't agree more, Eric. There's there's parts of me like I remember when Fog of War came out, 
you recall I was working at Barnes and Noble. I remember Ed and I, an associate of mine, who I used to have a lot of discussions about everything with. I remember looking at him and saying, "God, I, I, I would actually prefer to have McNamara as Secretary of." Of defense right now than, <laughs> than, uh, than Rumsfeld and and there's a guy who you know did not like McNamara or Rumsfeld and he agreed just because he's yeah. like yeah I'll take the the bookworm right now over the uh, the guy who's you know completely out in left field um, yeah. because he, one does get the impression that McNamara is he was one of Eisenhower's whiz kids he's one of the best and brightest with an immaculate resume mm. he's a smart man despite all the architecture he did and the you know the Sort of like all the wars he was directly involved with, particularly in World yeah. War II and in Vietnam. And in Vietnam, yeah. And, yeah. But yeah. So yeah, I mean that's a good place we can all we can all agree to start on is like how how do you think Morris treats Rumsfeld at least in the beginning third of the film? Um, and if you notice, and and, I'll, I, and I'm asking you guys that, but if you notice, I'll, I'll 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 ask and answer my own question a little bit. He. After the first 10 minutes, when we pause to go back in the fog of war to look at McNamara's upbringing, you know, like there comes that little trigger where it's like, oh, now we're getting the biographical part of the documentary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the fog of war, there's a lot to talk about, you know. He was like one of the youngest or the youngest tenured professor at Harvard or what? I mean, just there's a lot yeah. there. And with, Mac, with, with Rumsfeld, it's a couple minutes. It's like, yeah, yeah he got married, you know. and Didn't uh, want to. Didn't really want to. <laughs> yeah. Didn't want anybody else to grab her and entered political life. <laughs> and it was the right decision, you know. It sounds very calculated. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, you, don't, you get the, the, the sense that um, with, with Rumsfeld, um, you know, and I, I agree with everything that you guys said about the, the, the fog of war, but you, you just, you get the idea that everything was, was, scripted like he like like he had kind of canned answers for everything that morris was going to ask him yeah totally and he's very combative you know morris generally speaking with his documentaries i always feel like the less the errol morris talks the better the documentary well yeah you look at his early stuff and you just the 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 re i mean i love errol morris's first few films just because of the fact that he sits back and he lets the characters take um Take control and, yeah. and 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 tell the story. Um, I was telling Nick that I just recently watched Vernon, Florida, which he hadn't watched, he hadn't seen in a long time, and I loved it because of the fact that he he he's completely sits back and lets the characters <laughs> tells tell tells a story and and interesting stories. Too. The, 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 the squirrel, turkey, the, the turkey, turkey, the, turkey <laughs> the squirrels, the turkey, yeah. and you know, yeah, they're 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 interesting people. Yeah. Um, but with 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 the whole Rumsfeld thing, you know, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Eric, but it's okay. Go on. You, I, I, oh no, I, no, I'm, I'm, yeah. I was just, I was just saying, like the less Morris, the the better, generally. But I think in this case, he had to. I think he had to prompt him a lot, and he and he had to be a little assertive because I think that you know Rumsfeld. That that's his mode, you know. His mode is responding and 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 trying to change the topic. And you know, I get the sense that he didn't really have a whole lot to say. That was really that smart. And there's one 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 moment in particular where he says the um, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. And he looks so self satisfied. And now. Errol Morris has a background in philosophy. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, he is he is a very deep thinker. He knows a lot about philosophy. Uh, he, he, you know, this this 
it must have taken a great amount of restraint for him just and, and and wisely he just let Rumsfeld say that and sit there and he, he captures that self-satisfied grin and then cuts and I thought that was great because you know that's when they're talking about the evidence of of just for the listener that of, of weapons of mass destruction right yeah. yes and uh, yeah exactly and so there's so many ways you can you can there's so many rebuttals you can have to something like that. And there's so many ways he could have argued that. And he just let him go. And that, that, that was wise. Cause I was like, well, oh, come on, you know, you know, there, uh, yeah. I mean, yes, I guess that's true, but you know, it doesn't, it, that doesn't justify action. Well, know? it was kind of like listening so, to Bush speak. I mean, you know, remember when, when, when Bush would always, he would say these stupid things or he would try and use philosophy in his own way. And um, I always loved it when, reporters or somebody who just kind of would let him just let him take his let own grave yeah. yeah let him go and take his own grave and and, and make the, him look stupid kind of like they you all know, like palin or somebody or or whoever else let them yeah. let, give them enough rope they'll hang themselves absolutely i'll tell you the moment i knew we were in trouble um and it came it came quite early because you know i as again i felt that morris was was giving him many outs that was the whole point to sit down and talk about what had happened what what kind of rabbit hole were we in from you know the from you know basically 911 up to present day in foreign policy and mm-hmm. you know he evasively he, he essentially dodges dodges the whole thing whereas yeah. you know McNamara wants to come to grips with it he's dodging it and i knew we were in trouble right off the bat when he says what's the obsession right he says uh-huh. says what's the obsession and he goes what is it with you and that word obsession i'm i'm cool i'm cool I'm measured. I'm not obsessive. The dude right. wrote four million fucking memos. Okay, <laughs> he's saying he's not obsessive, and then he has everybody like buy dictionary. Wait, well, remember that whole thing about dictionaries? Yeah, dictionaries. Yeah. 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 yeah what is the dictionary definition of this? And, he's not obsessive. And... He's like obsessive compulsive. I mean, he is like beyond obsessive. I mean, he he. He's sitting there telling Errol Morris that he's not an obsessive guy, yet we have an entire library dedicated to this dude's, you know, notes, notes, right? And yeah, notes essentially his snow his snowflakes. And snowflakes. I'm I'm thinking, you know, uh oh, we're in trouble. This guy's in denial about something or some things. And I thought we're in trouble here because he's calling him obsessive. And I thought it was disingenuous. Yeah, it's interesting to start the movie like that too, because that's the very beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, to start with that and have him say, I'm measured, you know, that's that's his self-image of being measured and cool. And I, I agree with you, Nick. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, he. I know Morris wanted to get to, like, what about 9-11, mm-hmm. right? And the whole thing, all those, all those memos about Saddam Hussein before 9-11 and then the invasion of Iraq, and he just... Yeah, it seems like he couldn't get there. I kind of feel bad for him in the editing room, like going, "What can I do with all this stuff?" Right? He actually yeah. says to him, "Look at they poll. They did a poll, and it said that the yeah. American public conflated Iraq mm-hmm. and 9/11. You know, it was sold as a package deal. Ah, oh, that's, that's nobody thought that way in the White House. Well, mm-hmm. okay, fine, but the, the poll, <laughs> but the poll yeah. and that was that would be his answer. They would move on, right? Wouldn't you know? It was like such such uh, such political answers have you guys heard any uh reactions from rumsfeld about this movie i have not i have not either um the reason i ask is because i i'm always struck by how 
often the people he interviews like his movie. He's um, Fred Leuchter of Mr. Death, which is actually my favorite Morris film, uh, Mr. Death and Rise and Fall of Fred Leuchter Jr. Um, you haven't seen it. That's my, that's my favorite film of his, I think. Um, he liked it, and he it's a very uh, ambivalent, I guess, look at this guy. Robert McNamara, I think that you know we were just kind of talking about McNamara in somewhat glowing terms from that film, but he really does – paint him ambivalently it's it's he he really foregrounds the fact that the guy will not answer a question directly that he tries to justify a lot of things that are kind of unjustifiable you know you get, people always ask questions about were those crocodile tears at the end um but mcnamara loved the film he thought it was great uh so i, I wouldn't be surprised if rumsfeld liked this even though it makes him look like an obstinate ass but that's kind of i guess what it is he, he thinks he's clever but he clearly like isn't. There is a lot of empathy created for McNamara, though, in the structure of Fog of War. And yeah, I didn't say there's not, but it's ambivalent. Yeah, 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 true. true, yeah. true. You can definitely read it either way. Uh, but the but the subjects seem to like the movies. Yeah. The subject which I find did, interesting. Yeah, they did seem to like the movies for sure. So I wouldn't be surprised if Rumsfeld looks at this and says, "Yeah, it came off really well." And I, it's it's, a, it's interesting because that's why he gets people right. If he vil- if he made McNamara look like a villain, then Rumsfeld probably wouldn't have done the, this one, right? Why would he? Possibly. Yeah. Or well, maybe I don't know. I love that last question he asks. Why are you doing this? Why are you talking to me? <laughs> he says, "I haven't the faintest idea." You know, at the very yeah, end of the movie. The mo- that was a great yeah. way to end the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, and I like I love the the tagline um, on the poster of the film. Why is this man smiling? smiling. <laughs> because you know he, he does that throughout the film. He's got this yeah. this this smarmy grin. Rictus, as uh, as Morris puts it, you know. Rictus, yeah, that's a yeah, that's a really really good way of putting. <laughs> got this 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 grin throughout the whole movie, like. Like he's Mr. Like, like you said, like he's Mr. Clever, and that you know he's kind of, you know, that that he's kind of a mastermind, and you know we're we're not quite in on the joke yet. To me, yeah. there seemed to be a really uh, one of sort of the overarching themes of it, which is Morris wondering why people in power are so ignorant of history, um, and then we're doomed to sort of make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Is when as soon as there was like a, a lower third came up and no 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 it wasn't even a lower third as soon as I saw the Huey helicopter in the air I go mm. oh boy we're going to fall Saigon it's, Saigon yeah we're going yeah, to seventy five um, right now and it's exactly where we went and it seemed to me that Morris sort of set up the fall of Saigon as perhaps a history lesson and you know there there comes that moment where he asks you know. What, what what can we learn from Vietnam that you applied later and in your second term as Secretary of Defense? And of course, he says it's going to be a famous quote. You know, some things work out, some things don't. That didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an unbelievably callous thing to say. You know, with with the death toll. <laughs> yeah. And and um, but not far later in the film, he asks a a, a linking question to the one about Vietnam. But now we're we're talking about Iraq, and he says, "Wouldn't it have been better not to go there at all?" And I don't know if you mm-hmm. guys remember this or not, yeah. mm-hmm. but he writes down. Um, he, uh, he his his answer to that was, "I guess time will tell." Time will tell. Yeah. And I'm like, why do you think he asked you questions about Vietnam, the rabbit hole of that? You know, exactly. Why do you think 
he asked that and yeah. it's like well geez here's the here's the answer well, of course, he's not the first person. Morris is not the first person to make the comparison between Vietnam and Iraq. I mean, right. you'd you'd, th- you'd think that um, Rumsfeld would have heard this before and would have been prepared for it a little bit better. Yeah, he did. Uh, there was a clip where someone talks about the definition. He's talking about definitions, and someone says, "What about quagmire?" Which is obviously a reference to Vietnam as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's heard it before. But yeah, you're right, Nick. I mean, it's it's really masterful. I don't know if it's the editing or or the or the or the uh, order in which he asks the questions, but he goes from Vietnam to Iraq and says, "Is there something to be learned from Iraq? Should we maybe have not have gone there?" Obviously, alluding to Vietnam and learning from history. And yeah, his only answer is time will tell. You know, the guy who's measured and cool and thinks he's a philosopher, that's all he has to say is time, time will tell. tell. Yeah. And then there's another part where he says something like some things work out, some things don't. It's yeah, it's very Flip. Yeah. Yeah. The um this overall for me this film is uh certainly not one of my favorites of, of Earl Morris's. Um I, I I didn't hate it. I liked it, I thought it was interesting, but um I don't know if I'll go back to it. I mean, I probably will at some point just, just to kind of refresh, you know. But he does a lot of the same things he does in others. I remember in Fog of War, he has all those numbers falling from the sky when Nick Nomero is talking about statistics. And this one, he has these words falling into a hole, you know, some very similar things. One of the big differences, though, um, is the soundtrack. I know you guys want to talk about that, about the Danny Elfman soundtrack, which yeah, I... Elfman was an interesting choice. Yeah, yeah, it was it was an interesting choice um, of composers because um, Elfman's sound it, it, it's it's so so signature. Yeah. And when you when you put a composer like Elfman, and I I don't think Elfman has done a documentary before. I know he's done TV advertising and stuff like that. He's independent orchestral stuff in addition to his film work. Uh, I don't know if he's actually scored a documentary before. So that was a little bit weird. For, I don't know if I'd say I didn't like it. I mm. thought at times it was a little distracting. Yeah, that's um, a better way to put it. I, I think. I disagree. Uh, I think it worked perfectly because he sort of, I mean, he you, didn't you mention Edward Scissorhands earlier? Yeah, I mean, yes, it did have this Edward Scissorhands. Mm-hmm. Right, and Edward Scissorhands, the, the basic tonal structure of that and the melody is fairy tale like So therefore, right. I think that this became a really appropriate <laughs> score because it's almost like. Because uh, Rumsfeld's in La La Land. Logical fairy tale. Land. <laughs> uh, yeah. So for me, you know, if not if you're not going to use Philip Glass, it seemed to me that that Elfman did a, a wonderful, almost overstated score for the film. Yeah. Sort of oh, that was that was my problem with it was that it was overstated. That's, uh, that's right. That's why it works. In parts. Me, yeah. In parts. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I don't get me wrong, Nick. I it's not that I didn't like it. I mean, I liked it. It's a good score. I mean, it's yeah, good same. music. I mean, I, I've always been a fan of Elfman. Um, but I think there's an application here, guys. I you know that I'm, maybe I'm not selling you on, but because the you know I, obviously I'm trying to make the link between the overstatement is the overstatement. I mean, there's an overstatement in the film. Rumsfeld himself, right? He's sort of like the fact that he his lack of. Uh, um, uh, acknowledgement or his uh, inability to answer direct questions sort of puts him in this sort of fairy tale like I'll cast my own leg- legendary you know history will this will be my my uh, my legacy my history my background and so Elfman's mimicking that essentially with this sort of like fine 
then we'll just, you know, how about fantasy land? You know, that's where we'll build, <laughs> we'll build the score right. out of this sort of lush, um, you know, orchestral, almost narrative approach because we're not getting much of a documentary. So I think yeah, that's a I, good fit. Yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, that might, <laughs> I don't know if that might be a stretch, but, uh, you know, I mean, I get what you're saying. Well, I, it makes me, it makes me miss Philip Glass a little bit. And Philip Glass is not an understated, uh, you know, I mean, his, he's, he's very signature as well. And I think what my problem is, is that I just associate, uh, the look of Errol Morris's films with the Philip Glass score because he scores so many of them. Sure. You know what I mean? But I think that for me with the Elfman score, I think a lot of times it worked. A lot of times it did work. Like when those words are falling down that hole, and the score at that point is very like dramatic and yeah. kind of ominous. And I thought that really worked. And that was overstated. But I think for me, the only problem with it is that um, is when I'm watching a film, I don't like it. It pulled me out in the sense that like I was watching it with Rebecca last night. And she's like, oh, this sounds like over scissor hands, like at the very, very beginning. And I was like, yeah, yeah. It sounds like it's pulling me out and into this fictional realm, which I guess I get. What you're, I get. I, you know, I get your. I do get your point. But there are points where I felt like it overpowered what was going on. But I don't know what else he could do because, like I said, I think Rumsfeld gave Errol Morris very little to work with, yeah. and he had to do something right. That's and why I, I hate a lot of those. I just feel like there are times I just I just miss Philip Glass. I just miss his touch. You know, that's right. All. I, I think yeah, Nick. I think that's a very good point. I, I I see I see the metaphor that you're saying. I mean, I. No, I think um, it's a metaphor. I think I think like composers, you know, they have to tap into the. the well, no, of course. The film's essentially about and uh, uh, underscore it or, or add. You know, I mean, what what's the composer's job here? So as Eric just said, there's very little to work with. So I yeah. think that he right. did what he did. He drew upon his, you know, his talent. He for did what he had to do. Right. And he, and he sort of jazzed it up a little bit. Yeah. I yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I like that, and I get that, and I, I think you know during the scene where the words are falling down, and during the inner the the those um scenes where they have the the time lapse photography of DC, I think it works really nicely in some yeah, of those I scenes. Yeah, um, I but I mean, some of the other like like some of the other stuff, like I said, it was again, I like I loved, it. I thought it was a nice score, because I love Elfman, but um, I think sometimes when you're just trying to pay attention to what everything else is going on when he's reading the the memos. Um, he could have toned it down a little bit, but that, again, that's just 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 yeah. an opinion. I think uh, we, we, the the 35 minute timer went off a little while ago, but I just wanted to um, to say like as far as Morris's films in general, I think what he does well is he makes a film that asks other questions. It's not just here, let's talk to general Rumsfeld, right? Um, the fog of war was about, you know, I mean, it was, it was, uh, structured around 11 lessons, if you recall. Yeah. Right. Um, Mr. Death is all about, you know, belief. It's a lot about like, how do we come to believe the things we believe? Can we trick ourselves into believing things, you know, stuff like that. Um, the thin blue line, how do we come to know the truth? And I read a lot of his films as, as, kind of meditations on the ability our ability to to recognize or to find the truth and i know he would disagree with this i've read some of his uh essays he has these brilliant essays in the new york times um mostly on photography uh, in the last year or two he's been writing for them which if you haven't seen i think is well worth i'll link to it in the show notes but um well worth reading and i know that he would disagree with me on what i'm saying but i can't help but read these these kind of 
like um, almost postmodern, especially with uh, Mr. Death and maybe Fog of War and uh, some of the others uh, kind of uh, meditation on how do we even get to the truth? But I know he believes there's a truth out there and we can get to it, but his characters, Chris, you said the word characters earlier, which I thought was great because these are actual people, but they're also characters, right? Sure they are. Uh, yeah. And I think that his characters, like he sets it up very well to, to, you know, kind of ask these meta questions of, you know, do these people really believe these things? How do they come to believe these things? What can we learn from what these people believe? What might they learn? And I think Rumsfeld left them almost nothing. You get very little of that in this, in this film. And it's, it's very frustrating. The film is very frustrating, I think. And I think that I, I, I think it's meant to be, you know, I think that, you, you know, I think that he had, to, he put it together in a way to be frustrating. But what do you guys think about that? About about what you said? Yeah, about all that, <laughs> any of that. Well, I don't disagree with any of it. I um, I, I my final thoughts, let me dovetail quite nicely about that. But I guess there's one area where I think it's important to note that this the problem with this film in in Morris's canon is it's just ill timed. I think. Um, whereas hmm. McNamara, well, McNamara was ready to talk. Um, and I don't think that Rumsfeld was. Rumsfeld has huh. many political answers as if he's still culpable in some way for all this stuff, which he is. But I, I just don't think he's near enough the end of his days to, to, to realize that it's better to die with a clear conscience than... I think you're giving him too much credit. <laughs> no, I mean, this is <laughs> resume. He's traveled the world... Yeah. Over, I mean, when he was special envoy when he when when he worked with NATO when he, this guy's mm -hmm. resume is impressive. He just he's not that dumb. I think he's just willfully he's, oh, too, I, he's a political guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not McNamara. Okay, I'll give yeah. that. He's not a he's not a whiz kid. He's not a genius, but yeah. but not dumb. No, I didn't say it was dumb. I just think you're giving him too much credit. I think uh, the, if he is diagnosed with uh, some terrible disease and he has a week to live, he still won't. <laughs> I think there are defenses going on here, you know. Yeah, I don't. I, McNamara, let me finish. I I think that no, I I I'll stand by that because no one can predict what somebody's going to. I well, mean, of course, look, look not at, you, not me. Yeah. Well, look yeah. at active killing, right? Yeah. Look at what was accomplished there. So yeah. you never know when somebody's ready to talk. Or yeah, that's true. If if ever. If, if ever. ever. Right. So my point yeah. is that we're too. There's no clarity because there's no distance between 9/11 yeah. and, and Iraq. That's uh, true. When McNamara was talking about Cuban Missile Crisis or Vietnam, it's 40 years later, 50 years later in the case. So and World That's War II. So yeah. I think that it's just he's not ready. So you're trying to like, you know, get a splinter out of a thumb, and it's just not going to come. You know? Yeah. I, just to bolster what you just said, um, the part where he says that. Obama was against Guantanamo and he was against Iraq and all yeah, this. Yeah, that was an interesting were, point. And, but Guantanamo is still open and we're still in Iraq and all that stuff. So that that actually kind of supports what you're saying to a large extent, Nick, because a lot of what Rumsfeld set in motion is still going on. Yeah, and and yeah. And, and, and 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 when we talk about Chris, I know you want to say something, so I'll I'll make this my last comment. It's not a question of whether I like the film or don't like the film within his canon of work. The film is the film. It's his subject matter, and this is what it is. I think yeah. Morris did a great job. 
Um, you know, I mean, it's no different than his last several films, tabloid in- included. It's the subject matter, right? Yeah. I mean, his skills as a documentarian are, are ever sharp. But, you know, what what could he yield from this? And it was, right. you know, he had a kind of an unwilling participant who was more interested in, yeah. you know, writing his own history. Yeah, absolutely. Chris? I was, I was going to say, I mean, I, 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 um, I think you're right, Nick, that he wasn't ready to talk. I mean, I think if I think this kind of a film would have been similar if he had made it and interviewed George W. Bush uh, about it too. Um, you know, I, I I don't know if I don't know if Rumsfeld will ever be ready to talk. And um, you know, you you made a comment, and maybe this is going to be cynical of me. Um, you know, you made a comment where where. Um, you know, someone die with a clear conscience, and I, I don't, I don't know if Rumsfeld has a conscience. Um, the, the, the way, the way he just discussed it, and you're right. In the act of killing, we do see some pretty remarkable things. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I just, he, he's such a company man. Yeah. He's such a politician that I, I think on his deathbed he would still be grinning and saying, I, I, I did, I did what was right. He, he, I think he still would believe his own hype. Well, at least we have over a million memos to, uh, yeah, to, yeah, to to bear that out, I guess. But yeah. Yeah, I I I kind of agree with Chris, but we don't know. We don't know what's going on inside his eighty-one-year-old head. You know. <laughs> yeah, he's eighty-one. Knows, true. Yeah. You know, he could yeah. kick off tomorrow, and who knows what? Who knows what he would think? Can I just put one postscript onto this before we move on? Um, I was just looking at um. Errol Morris's IMDb page and uh, listed in pre-production is a movie called Holland, Michigan. Do you guys know about this? It looks like a a fiction film starring Brian Cranston and Naomi Watts. And the, um, he's director. And uh, I just lost the synopsis, but um, it's a thriller centered on a woman who suspects her husband is cheating and enters into an affair of an affair of her own before leaving her husband's true dark secret life or learning her husband's true dark secret life. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, he, he does have one fiction film that I never ever hear him talk about called um, Dark Wind, uh, which I which I tracked down on Laserdisc way back in the day when I was thinking about doing my dissertation on Errol Morris. And uh, it was uh, directed in 1991. I've never heard him talk about it. It it often doesn't get listed in his credits, but yeah, he directed it. It had, um, uh, I can't remember the actor's name right now. Is that Lou Um, Diamond Phillips? Lou Diamond Phillips. Yeah, that's who it was. I pulled it up on IMDb. Yep, yep. Um, and it's an interesting movie, actually. But this this Holland, Michigan, might be his uh, second foray into into fictional film, which I'll, I'll be happy to watch. Obviously. Oh yeah. But, um, but just, I just I just glanced at his director credit. This is in pre production for 2015, so maybe we'll have something interesting to talk about next year as well. Cool. <laughs> Because so, I could talk about this guy forever, obviously, as you guys know. Um, but we shouldn't. We should move on to segment two. Okay, so uh, principal photography, segment two of episode number 21. Uh, we're going to talk about the act of killing, which uh, was released last year in 2013, and was nominated for. Did it win the Oscar? 
No. It, it was nominated. Nominated. It was nominated for uh, for best documentary, and it dovetails really well with our with our previous discussion of Errol Morris, in part because Errol Morris is co-producer of the film. Right. Um, he and Werner Herzog co-produced the film, uh, directed by Josh Oppenheimer. Is there a relationship to Robert? I I look, I, I, I don't know. Quickly online, <laughs> but I couldn't find an answer. So I don't know. I was curious. <laughs> it's a famous name. <laughs> it is. Yes. I. Uh, yeah. I don't know. We'll have to look into that. I did. I typed it into Google, but Google didn't tell me. Stupid Google. Google. Yeah. So uh, now that we've previewed our preparedness for this, <laughs> I'm joking. Oh uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, he directed it. Uh, I don't know anything about Joshua Oppenheimer to be honest with you. Um, I know of this film because it got a lot of coverage last year and it got the nomination. So I thought it'd be it'd be interesting to watch. Um, just as a quick background, it's a film where this documentary filmmaker goes to Indonesia to interview. Uh, these death squad leaders from uh, from the 60s, from the overthrow in 1965, uh, these people killed hundreds, maybe thousands uh, of people uh, during the uh, anti-communist regime, the Saharto regime, and I believe, and he goes back, interviews them, but doesn't just interview them, has them recreate the killings on film as, as a film basically, which is what makes this film so interesting and powerful and potentially problematic. Um, and certainly got it a lot of attention, um, in ways that, that probably a straight documentary would not have. So that's, that's kind of your background for the, for the act of killing. We all watched it. We all watched it this morning, I believe. Right. I know Chris and I watched it this morning. I watched, uh, the first half, uh, last night I don't even remember. Okay. This morning. And yeah. One so interesting though, Eric. I think we need to, for the listener, understand that there's semantic issues with this film and what they call communists. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are people that basically yeah. oppose the military dictatorship? Yeah. Uh, so any like intellectuals, uh, um, farmers, you know, farmers who are not landowners, uh, mm-hmm. dissidents in any way. Yeah. Um, Anyone who disagreed at all, Anybody basically, you know, um, was a, called a communist. So not yeah. the traditional yeah. Marxist sense of the word, Marx Engels. Yeah. The, there, there may have been some communists who got killed, sure. but it was, it was, that was not, yeah, they were just called communists. Intellectual, yeah. So I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good, uh, it's a very good point. It was just you know, a terribly brutal time where they say between half a million and a million people were killed. Um, in this in this really really brutal dictatorship, and it was sanctioned by the military. Uh, it wasn't carried out by the military; it was, it was carried out by these kind of uh, freelance, uh, what they call themselves, gangster groups. Um, and the army wasn't officially involved, but yeah. they sanctioned it, and and so it was one of those kind of one of those kind of situations where it was encouraged and tolerated. And there's another semantic issue. They called the ga- gangsters to them means that's free man. And where does that come from? So okay, so, yeah, that's that's where I wanted to get to actually. Was um, so these guys, like, just for a little more setup, I guess like, these guys are much older. Um, 
one of them like they they recreate these killings with glee almost um one of them seems very remorseful at the end there is kind of a narrative arc um where where one of the main guys feels feels you know you can tell he's starting to regret it he has nightmares and the other guy absolutely does not in any way whatsoever he stays straight out i don't regret it it's the way it was you have to deal with it you know um but the whole time they saw themselves as gangsters their word Right, yeah, or which means free men. Free men. Yeah, they linked it to you know American film, and, mm-hmm. and said that you know. But then they appropriated the word. You know, I mean the actual etymology of it, which I looked up, was just you know, late eighteen hundreds uh, England, you know, and of course migrating over to the states, meaning you know you're part of a gang, you're a gangster. <laughs> yeah, which, which is interesting because that would not seem to me to mean free man because free man. it means you're part of a gang, right? But yeah, it's a really interesting translation well, of the word gangster. They're also guilty in rewriting history, you know? It's like, yeah, they have that wonderful discussion about history in there. And like yeah. What, what, but yeah, I mean, so that we don't get ahead of ourselves, yeah, Eric, mm-hmm. it, it's uh, that this narrative arc is extremely interesting. There's yeah. so many things going on in this film. It's, it's hard to uh, address them all because, yeah. we're, you know, we're kind of, I think we'll just sort of like ping pong to from one idea to the next as they come to us because yeah uh, there's so there's there's comments on cinema there's comments i mean there's like yeah itself this is self-representation yeah Yeah. the ethics of the filmmaker too are in question you know and i and i I don't want to be the voice of dissent but i want to throw it out there that in in, despite oppenheimer's um noble uh, um What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, methodology. Um, you know, one 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 could argue. I'm not saying I'm making this argument that you're 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 traumatizing a whole new uh, generation generation of children that were being brought into the. I mean, there's this big scene towards the end where they built burn this village down and recreate rapes and stuff. Oh my like gosh! Yeah, Every, these these boys and girls are crying. They have they have they don't have the, the intellectual capabilities of processing what's going around around right. the whole concept of reality and fiction is blurred and 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 i started to think not for the first time you know that is it's 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 a greater good documentary like Shoah or night and fog but like mm-hmm. it also started making me think what are the ethical considerations in 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 bringing others into your project here i want to say just i was going to say this a long time ago but when you said you looked it up First of all, I'm really glad you looked up the etymology of the word gangster. Yeah. But on the other hand, I want to say, what are you, Rumsfeld over here? <laughs> Looking this up. No, I'm so glad you did. I, I, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Chris, about the ethical considerations or anything? I mean, we just threw a lot uh, out there. Yeah, the, the, I mean, as far as the, I mean, the ethical considerations of the film, I mean, Oppenheimer was 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 criticized uh, a little bit about that. I think um, about whether he was not only uh, in how he was treating these children, which, you know, the, the, the thing that, 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 you know, when I was watching it that I just found so pro- profoundly disturbing is the scenes when they are recreating some of these and you have the children around who are watching it, who are recreating it, who are cheering at the end, you know, they don't, you're right, Nick, these children don't have the intellectual capacity to grasp what's going on, but, it, it 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 it's almost like those those shows you see where, you know, you have like the white supremacists and the kids are like waving Nazi you know, swastikas and and <laughs> and singing along the white power anthems and all that. It's like they don't they, they these kids are being like exposed to this, um, 
really, really heinous um, stuff that's that, that that's going on. Um, I mean, I think Oppenheimer, from an ethical standpoint, aside from that, did what he could to try and yeah, he he had a very noble cause. And I, I at the after after this film came out, he pretty much demanded that the United States and the UK um, be accountable for kind of ignoring all of this and the fact that this still goes on. I, I guess what I was what I was going to say is, and and this would be my own. I was posing the question objectively a minute ago, but I would say, like, if I was working on the project, I would have said, you know, Josh, think about it for a second here. We're staging this for our cameras. In, in efforts to try and get pe- these people to come to grips with their past. But, you know, we're taking a step forward and one back at the same time because look at all these people you're going to be involving in this, and these children don't, don't, don't know what's right. going on here. Do you really want to shoot this? You know? Yeah, I probably would have said the same thing. Um, I, I probably would have made some sort of comment about that too yeah. because that was really jarring to see kids who are that young participating. In, well, the in, one in dude this. holding the little girl afterwards and saying, you're embarrassing me. You're only supposed to cry for a minute or something like that. You know right, what I mean? Yeah. Like, and it was like, those uh, are real tears. Yeah. Those are real tears, man. And so, so um, like, yeah, uh, the people like the, these, even though there was this at the very end for the one guy, um, uh, uh, this kind of moment of, of redemption, quasi redemption. I mean, these people were just, tradition. They're they're just monsters. I, I I I don't I don't I don't know how else to to to, to categorize them. I mean they're on uh, the 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 glee that they talked about killing people. The meth the 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 methodology that that they were so all right. Well, you do it this way, and you, you, let me act it out, and there's not as much blood, and they can't you know they can't grab the wire because no, it's, no accountability. No accountability. That's, that's no remorse. They were punished for their crimes. They were so. punished. They were they were on the level of Nazis. I, they, they were just absolute monsters. Like Eric was saying, you know, the one guy Adi, I think his name, and his who's flown in, and mm. I think the other guy Anwar, I think it's Anwar, Anwar Congo, I think Congo. Yeah. Yeah. Anwar meets him at the airport, and you can and they start. You know, you you start to see the the sort of like polarity between these two guys. One guy says in the beginning of the film, "I've done every kind of drug you can imagine." <laughs> try to basically come to grips with this stuff, but I try not to dwell upon it. It kind of dwells upon me. And then the other guy's like, "I never give it any second thought." You know, it's like I mean that does show the differences in sort of like the psyches of human beings. Is yeah, some people can do things and they rationalize it and and sleep like a baby, and other people. Um, cannot. Uh, I mean, this is one big sort of Freudian, you know, um, uh, spectacle. This film. It's all about repression, and it's all about you know reenacting events. It's psychoanalysis, bringing up the past. Literally, he starts bringing up. I mean, he starts retching. <laughs> yeah, at the <laughs> end there. It's an incessant retching um, because they've made him. They've made him experience the most important thing, and he, you know one of the most important traits that any human being can have, which is empathy. They've been living in like a, a, a empathy, a lack of empathy state for so long that now that they're forced to sort of relive this, they're not forced, I should say, they're willing and participating in reliving these mm-hmm. things. The ghosts come back and for one guy, they, they, you know, it's almost cathartic and for another, it's whatever business is. Yeah. I'm glad they had both those guys in there as these contrasting kind of uh, reactions to it. 
you get the guy who really does seem detached at times, but but remorseful, and the other Some guy way. who's just like, you know, yeah. I mean, that, that thing at the very end where he's having his kids watch, here, end, watch, yeah. watch me get you know strangled. It's very strange, and it seems very businesslike at first. He's like, oh, there's so much blood here. Let me show you how we eliminated the blood. <laughs> um, I mean, it's very it's very odd, but. You know, one guy says, you know, they're talking about the human rights conventions and stuff oh, like yeah. that. And the guy says, yeah. yeah, he says human rights, you know, that's that's written by the winners. You know, what what what's a crime is is determined by the by the winners. And that's an interesting comment, right? Yeah. He's like, we won. I wasn't held accountable. Therefore, we were right. I don't have to. I don't have to recognize some international court. Is basically his point. And you have to when he says that. You, I mean, he's not wrong in not a wrong. certain way. Yeah. You know? One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah so and that's why he brings up international law and says, "Well, you know." And then he's like, "Fine, take me to Hague. That's fine. I'll, I'll you know, I, I go as a celebrity." And it's like, "Yeah, yikes, man." Yikes. Uh, but, and yeah. So you, Eric, you're right. I mean, I felt the exact same way. I'm like, "Look at this guy's making a good point." I don't even not that any of us are condoned. No, 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 I don't believe it. I don't buy it. Yeah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's all wonderful you know, world of denial, just like Rumsfeld. Yeah. But yeah. but uh yeah, he's I mean, from his point of view, he's sleeping like a baby because he said, Well, look, I mean, these people paid me to go kill all these people and you know, and then nothing ever happened. So clearly, you know, society has found me not guilty. Therefore I'm not guilty. Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 not <sighs> This was not a pleasant film to watch. It no. was it was it was brutal. It, it was it was just you know um it was just it was, not enjoyable. It was, it was chilling, it was brutal, it, it 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 gave me the same kind of chill and feeling down my spine as uh Triumph of the Will. Okay. It 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 really it really boy, yeah, it, it and I think the uh, one of the criticisms I've read is that there's not a lot of context, you know, for for the political situation at the time, the historical situation. Um, in the, the Errol Morris wrote an article, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes, uh, where he talks about the film and he interviews um, not only the filmmaker but some other people, and he and he asks them this about this, and um, I mean, basically the idea is that it's not really about that it's about yeah. it's about these people Humanity. it's about yeah like how do we like what are people capable of you know how how do we you know enter into denial how do we portray or represent what we've done to ourselves you know stuff like that about guilt and lack of guilt and it's asking bigger questions and it's not just a straight a kind of historical kind of um kind of documentary and the thing that that's is sticking with me for some reason is the stuff about movies you know this yeah, whole yeah. the guy talks about how when they were movie gangsters which is basically like they would scalp tickets to uh, to the movie theater, and that's how they made money. And they go watch a movie, and he loved Elvis. Like Elvis kept coming up, right? And they'd watch an Elvis movie, and they'd be dancing, and they go across the street, and they go down the road to this place where they would kill people. Yeah. And they would kill. While them. they were still dancing, while, while they, they were, were still, still dancing, dancing still, you know, still singing the songs. Oh, we were, we were musical killers. Yeah, yeah. It's like I would ask off the guy a cigarette, and I'd, I'd be dancing, and I'd be happy. We were happy killers, you know. We weren't cruel, and that is what struck me. To, First, the the the, the re- repeated uh, references to movies yeah, over and over, and and 
the the idea that they got the word gangster from the movies. They got the method of killing, the method that, the, with the with the piano wire. They improved upon it. It was Godfather was after that, I think, but from gangster movies, though. At any rate, right? Um, yeah, and just this like kind of Hollywood influence on these guys who are actually killing intellectuals. They probably would have killed the filmmakers. <laughs> anyway, that's a different that's right. different thing. But um, that to me was interesting, and the fact that the whole conceit of the of the documentary is he's having these people make their own movie. Right. And I, I I would have liked a little like kind of background on how that came to be. Like how did he get to the point where he was asking these people to make a movie and giving them the resources to do so. I mean it's a it's a brilliant move in a way and it's chilling and weird and, and it it's hard to watch. But um I would like to know how he came, how how he got to that point where he's like, "Yeah, let's do this." You know, I just you made me think of something, Eric. It, it it reminds me in a sort of very consolidated two-hour story of our own affair with history and filmmaking, which is to say that you know the the American motion picture industry never bothered to get history right because they never thought that these would be important, lasting documents that. Mm. Would, studied in universities and so on and so forth you know when the movement sort of started coming around the 60s and 70s getting even better in the 80s and in the last 20 25 years there's been a lot more uh, emphasis on historical accuracy and not doing like a hippocratic oath basically not doing uh, danger or harm to to history you know you see all this sort of like within a two-hour span you see mm-hmm. them like go from like uh they, they mature they're all excited to cast their own history and relive the glory of when they were working for the the you know the military you know the government and and uh, uh, carrying out their orders and getting rid of dissidents and things like that and particularly for Anwar you know as it becomes more real and they start getting more real and he starts becoming more empathetic and he starts reliving these things uh the reality starts to set in and he has a pretty i mean i would call it an, an abject response he actually yeah. to 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 throw up and to retch and to fart and to all these you know he's he has a, a truly abject response and it, you know when you we talk about the movie the movie the movies it, it's like movie as corrective lens you know <laughs> is is like kind of one of the things going on in this film Using, like you said, the apparatus of filmmaking to get them to cooperate with yeah. the hopes that that would reach some sort of not catharsis, but um, resolution, maybe. No, just just uh, not even resolution, just retrieval of repressed moments. Yeah, I, that's a good that's a good way to put. That's a very good way to put nice it. Nice way, a very nice yeah. way to put it. Nick. Yeah, I. Um, I yeah, it's. I didn't expect all that either, to be honest. The way these guys are portrayed in the beginning of the film, I didn't expect any kind of change from any of them. Uh, and and they they argue a lot, not a lot, but they argue some while they're filming about how does this make us look. You know, they say if we make it look like the communists were, I put it in quotes, we put it in quotes so they don't, uh, the communists were not brutal. If we make it look like the communists were not guilty, where where it's already clearly shown in the movie that they they always make stuff up about people, that that journalists would just change the answers and then kill them. You know, that it was crazy. But anyway, they were worried that if they 
made it, the communists look at all sympathetic or not brutal, then they would be seen as brutal or cruel or, or in the wrong. And one guy says, so what? It's true. And the other guy says, well, just because it's true doesn't mean it should be shown. Right. All right. And so there's there, uh, some of them have a sense of, you know, what we did was wrong and it will be seen as wrong if we, you know, if we don't portray it in a particular way, and that and that goes to the defense mechanisms probably too. A lot of the Elvis and the dancing and the way they they reenact things and describe it in the beginning, I think, is a lot of it's just defense mechanisms. And then at the end, I think you're right, Nick. I think it gets intentionally or not on the filmmaker's part, it gets broken down with the one guy with Anwar Congo, where it gets past those mechanisms, and he's like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, it's you know. like the real tipping point for him was when was when somebody blindfolded him and put the yeah. wire around his neck, and he's like, and he yep. got to he got to feel what they were like, and, yeah. and he's like, well, yeah, but the difference is they knew they were going to die. Right. You were just acting. Josh I'm really glad he said him. that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah, for the listener, they they there's a part where they're they're acting out uh, killing on the guy who was the killer in Congo, and he's like, I really feel <clears> like I knew what my victims felt like. I I feel like I really knew when the, they were strangling me. And there's a silence for a little while. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, but they were going to die and they knew it. Mm-hmm. And then the, the director actually says that. He's like, yeah, but you don't know how they feel because they were, you, you say cut. This is a movie. And they knew they were going to die. Um, and he insists, though. He's like, but I feel like maybe all of that is coming back to me, like to haunt me. Like he's very afraid of it haunting him. And, you know, it makes, there's a very human element to that, you know, uh, that is. It's still chilling and, and ugh, but speaking of yeah. chilling, I don't think anybody would ever guess what for me the most chilling scene in the film was because it's kind of it's not the obvious choice. For me it's very it's it's part of the scene you were just talking about, Eric, where they're talking about history and, you know, truth, um, and how are we gonna look if the when this movie comes out. It's the actual guy who is uh, the neighbor of Anwar's, and he's telling his story about his stepfather being murdered. And the whole time he's doing it, he has to sort of like laugh and sort of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Capitulate to them and sort of subjugate himself to them while he's doing it. He has to sort of like say, oh, I don't really care about any of this. Ha, 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 ha. But here's what happened. Ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, oh, my God. It's like mm-hmm. the classic bully scene in, in, in the schoolyard where he's like, I don't mean to offend any of you with my tale of, of, of like, you know, which is, which is utterly the most traumatic moment in my life, or at least because I was seven years old and I found my stepfather who I cared about underneath a barrel with his foot poking out and we had to bury him like a goat. Ha ha ha. Don't yeah. hurt me. Ha, ha, and then the family got exiled. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, that part to me, for some reason made me so uncomfortable. And so yeah. like, because this, he had to sort of like cast his story in this sort of like, isn't this fun, fun for you guys to hear? Yeah. Trivialize it. Just yeah. Yeah. And then the guy shoots it down. He's like, "Well, we can't tell everybody's story. It would be the film would be too long. We'll we'll see if maybe we can put something in the guy." And then the performances that you tell that story. Yeah, and then his reaction was just, "Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point." What about the actual film of what we saw of the film that they made? What did you guys make of that? Yeah, at the very end, all those bright colors with the woman dancing and all that. Yeah, Um, you know the 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 tourists (laughs) with the big fish. 
Yeah. <laughs> very surreal. It's very surreal. And there's a part where one of the dead victims goes to Anwar Congo and puts a medal around him and says, yeah. thank you for executing me and sending me to heaven. Yeah. What <laughs> the hell? Closing yeah. segment and it's sort of like they come back to it as if they're staging some Busby Berkeley musical or something. And then, um, I, I don't know. Very bizarre. I'd be interested in seeing that movie. I mean, actually, I wouldn't be interested in seeing that movie because it's just too, ugh. But on the other hand, I wonder what they came up with. Like, because we only saw excerpts of the movie that they made. I wonder yeah. if they're when they when they release the film on like Blu-ray. I wonder yeah. if they're going to include that as a special feature. I'd be very curious. Yeah. Or an audio commentary would be really welcome. Yeah. Yes. You guys are listening, Joshua Oppenheimer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that'd be nice. So yeah, just to see that film that they made would be would be kind of interesting. But it's just yeah, it's so so bizarre. So I'm glad we watched it though. I mean, it was I think Chris brought this to us a while ago, and we just finally got around to it. Um, I'm glad we all watched it. It's 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 gonna kind of sit with me for a while. Me too. It it yeah, it's me me as well. Um, I mean, I'm I'm probably going to use this when I uh, when I teach um, in the future. Um, just because it's it's a it's so provocative and it can really get people to think, um, and uh, it, again it's it's not a film that I necessarily enjoyed, but I think it's it's a film that um, really begs to be seen and really should be seen by everybody. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Ugh, okay. Well, I, we we talked about. I, I'm glad we paired these together because both of the films we talked about are documentaries that you know teach us a little bit about history, but not really. They're more about the people, people involved, and how and yeah, people are about people and, and bigger kind of philosophical issues. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's what makes to me what makes a good documentary. It makes you think about about other stuff. And I think both these films did this to some extent. So. Yeah, Good. For listeners who aren't familiar with Errol Morris, you know, several of his films are on Netflix right now. Um, mm-hmm. To me, he is, you know, like I uh, said earlier, I'll just restate these. I think he's the most interesting and provocative and talented documentarian out there. So if you just, you know, there's plenty of films out there to, to sort of like jump into, jump into and, and immerse yourself into his world of, of documentaries. Um, Eric and I watched tabloid together for the first time shortly after it came out and then we watched it together and revisited it a second time and we're just <laughs> I think we we're kind of blown away the second time at how much more we enjoyed it yeah. the first time around when we were more or less analyzing it, scrutinizing it how does this fit into Morris's canon it's a bit of a departure and yet the second time we just had so much more fun with it and realized that it was very much a Morris film in every way you know yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think there are a lot of places to go if you if you're not familiar with Morris. Uh, there are, there are a lot of places to go, um, for sure. And we could well let's link to the the ones that are on Netflix on the on the on that's rapshow dot com because um, that's where you can find us is on that's a rapshow dot com. And remember, rap has a W in it. So, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, all that stuff. Um, we like comments, things like that. But uh, I'm glad we're back in the saddle. It's we had a little bit Feels of uh, unintentional hiatus, yeah, but so we're gonna try to get on a um... birthday to us. You know what we gotta <laughs> do is we should go see. You know, um, we could do a, another double feature here. We should go see Under the Skin and with um, uh, Jarmusch's vampire film. 
Ooh. not hearing the big D. And hey, don't make any promises on, on air. <laughs> I said what we should do. Yeah, what we should do is maybe we'll do a Wes Anderson podcast episode or something. Yeah, too. Yeah. All right, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit stop. I'm gonna hit stop in a second here, but um, give me less to edit here, okay? Uh, so anyway, that's thewrapshow.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, from that from that uh site. And uh, for That's a Wrap, I'm Eric Marshall. I'm Chris Cullen. And I'm Nick Schlegel. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Cut. That's a wrap.